Hello, and welcome to episode 14 of the Tar Sands Diplomat. We hope you're enjoying the story. If so, don't forget to tell your friends and put a review on the web, on iTunes, or for the book itself on Amazon.ca. And now, here's the author, Keith Halliday, podcasting episode 14. The Tar Sands Diplomat, chapter 16, continued. I took a deep breath and looked around. On the dashboard, there was a maple leaf. However, there was a one printed on it. I sighed to myself. I was in the minister's car. With a sinking feeling, I turned to my left and looked through a gap in the frame of the wheelchair. On the other side, I could see an expanse of bright green fabric and then the sagging but clearly hostile jowls of Senator Buffart. You must be from the Foreign Service, she said. A pungent odor of whiskey and old lady filled my nostrils. I nodded, trying to pull the wheelchair off her side of the rear seat. And who is that wheelchair for, young man? I was saved from having to answer when my cell phone rang. It was Hravinsky. He was surprisingly unfazed, perhaps even cheerful. McGregor, you keep surprising me. I was wondering how I was going to get her out of the minister's car once she climbed in. I owe you one. It's just a good thing the minister got his hand out of the car door handle before you took off. Now take the senator right to the hotel, and then to her meeting with the parliamentarians. No detours. And whatever you do, do not tell her about the Sir William Friddle meeting. Kravinsky hung up. I tried to calculate the odds that a senator from Kingston, Ontario would speak French. Next to nil, I decided. Nonetheless, I spoke to the driver in my most incomprehensible Parisian slur and told him to take us directly to the Hilton. I escorted Senator Buffard to the front desk, where a pleasant young woman awaited us. Her name tag said Shirley, and a little British flag indicated she spoke English. Do you speak English? demanded Senator Buffard loudly. She held her cane about six inches from the top and brandished it at Shirley to get her point across. Yes, replied Shirley calmly. I suppose after dealing with African dictators and the girlfriends of Russian oligarchs, one hardly notices even the crankiest Canadian senator. My phone rang again. If things got more hectic, I'd need a long rest in policy branch when the visit was over. It was Fravinsky again. Flaw in your plan, McGregor. You've got the official gift in your trunk. Leave the car to take Buffart to her appointments and dinner tonight and get the gifts over here pronto. Clear? I gave an affirmative grunt and he hung up. I explained to Senator Buffart that the car would wait to take her to the European Parliament and then left as she interrogated Shirley about the brand of whiskey in the minibar. I told the driver to wait to take Senator Buffart to the European Parliament and to make sure he handed her safely to Martin, the hapless Dutch staffer who took care of the crypto-fascist Hungarians and other political debris on the Canada Committee. After that, the driver was to take her to dinner at the official residence. My orders given and confirmed, I grabbed the box with the gift from the trunk and jumped into a cab for the commission. I took a deep breath as the cab moved through Brussels traffic. The previous day's press conference trauma was fading. I might not find out if anything of substance happened during the visit until I read the reporting telex later, but at least I was being helpful on the senatorial and gift fronts. The box weighed heavily as I skittered across the foyer towards security. Van de Vleert's assistant met me, and informing me that a large Norwegian delegation was waiting for the elevators, whisked me through a side door and up the stairs. I arrived in the commissioner's grand boardroom, covered in perspiration. I banged the gift boxes onto the sideboard table and panted heavily. Kennedy was seated beside the ambassador, looking poised and attentive, chatting with the minister and Dirk Beddo. Kravinsky paced by the window, 
muttering into his orange phone. I wiped my brow, tried to straighten my bow tie, and began opening the box. I sawed through the tape with my keys and found the box was full of smaller cardboard boxes. Kravinsky turned to the ambassador and fixed him with an expressionless stare. It's not assembled yet? The ambassador looked nervously at the boxes as I produced a man-shaped lump of soapstone from the first box, as well as various pieces of carved bone from an envelope. Kennedy, he said quickly, help McGregor. Reluctantly, she left Ravinsky and joined me at the side table. We frantically unpacked all the pieces and tried to assemble them. What is this, I asked. I thought we decided to give him the aboriginal wooden mask from the Yukon. Kennedy frowned awkwardly and whispered back. The ambassador took that one for his office wall. This is the meeting from a Callowit. I was appalled. You mean the piece Julian was killed with? Of course not, said Kennedy. The police have that one. This is just the rest of the set. Glostrom said they'd never notice a piece was missing. I unpacked a series of little soapstone briefcases. The minister suddenly spoke from across the room. That isn't the gift I chose. I told Smedling to go with a Klingit mask from up north in the Yukon. I'm not sure what happened, minister, I said, but this is Baffin Island's finest, straight from a Callowit. The minister seemed slightly mollified. What did they used to call that town? Frobisher Bay, I replied. The minister looked at me with interest. And what was that radar line they had during the Cold War? The Dew Line. Distant early warning, I said. The minister looked at Hravinsky, who nodded. I couldn't hear what Hravinsky said after that, but it was something baffling about blue and yellow wedges. Presumably this was some kind of secret argo among political operatives. Before I could overhear any more, the door opened, and Sir William Friddle strode into the room. He was well over six feet tall and beautifully dressed. He instantly dominated the room. Our minister cringed in his presence, as if he were a bankrupt used car dealer from Thunder Bay, meeting a titan of British politics who had global trade initiatives named after him. This, of course, was actually the case. Sir William Friddle moved towards the gift and picked up the piece of the woman standing at the head of the table making a slide presentation. Ah, Inuit modernist, he said. They were just starting this when I was there last. Sir William scanned the Canadians in the room, all of whom kept their eyes fixed on the statues. It's always embarrassing when some foreigner knows more about Inuit art than Canadians do. Friddle went on. We did a couple of NATO ministerial working groups there. I was always astonished to learn that Canada didn't allow Inuit people to vote until the 1960s. Having completed his successful PSYOPs intervention on our minister's fragile psyche, Sir William took his seat. The rest of us sat obediently. I produced my briefing notes on asbestos, fur, and our other problems, positioned our agenda on the table, and began to take notes. Our minister tried to regain some control of the room with his opening. Sir William, we have an issue that is, um, well, it's, it's an issue for Canada. You mean our approval for the Antwerp terminal to accept heavy oil from Fort McMurray, and whether it should be considered ultra-high carbon fuel for European regulatory purposes, said Friddle? I cringed. It appeared there had been some kind of miscommunication, since a detailed discussion of oil was not on the agenda that Kennedy and I had arranged so carefully with Van de Vliert. But our minister seemed relieved, of course. Sir William picked up the agenda. And of course we should talk about extending European pharmaceutical patents in Canada. I understand that the rest of the issues are to be left to officials to deal with at the working level, in the fullness of time, as circumstances permit. He looked at his assistant, an expensive-looking youth, who exchanged a nod with Beto and Hravinsky. 
it was as confusing as the colored wedges conversation. Well put, Sir William, said our minister. The Prime Minister has made it clear that no distractions are to interfere. Suddenly, the door burst open, again, revealing another expensively dressed young man. Excuse me, he drawled, languidly in a posh English accent with a trace of German. A Senator Buffart, a brief pause expressed his amazement that such a thing as a Senator Buffart could exist. A Senator Buffart is in the lobby, asking to be admitted to this meeting. She's making her point with verve, and if I may say, increasingly loudly. The minister shuddered and looked at Kravinsky, who stood up and beckoned me. McGregor, he hissed, get rid of her. Get rid of the senator, now. Hotel, and enough stiff drinks to knock her out. Kravinsky steered me inelegantly towards the door, as Sir William's German minion with the Oxbridge accent adopted the usual air of effortless superiority. I exited the room and strode briskly to the elevator. Before I'd taken half a dozen steps, I realized the hallway ended. The lift doors are the ones with the up-and-down buttons, over here, said my annoyingly superior new friend. I was about to turn and retrace my steps when suddenly the door to my left opened. It was Nigel Merton, whom I recognized from Friddle's table at the Duchess of Richmond's ball. His out-of-control hair with bald spot on top reminded me again of a deranged Russian pianist. He was Sir William Friddle's former fundraiser in London, and was now a lobbyist in Brussels. He was alone, in a small meeting room whose table was covered in papers. "'Where is the bloody sparkling water?' he snarled sarcastically down the hall to the receptionist. Then, he suddenly noticed me and Friddle's advisor. "'Never mind,' he snapped, and shut the door. "'Was that Nigel Merton?' I asked, as innocently as I could. It was the turn of Friddle's supercilious advisor to be discomfited. "'It looked like he was settling in,' I said. "'Who else do you have in the closet up here?' We stepped into the elevator. He's visiting from London for a few meetings. Sir William seeks advice widely, said Friddle's advisor evasively as he pressed the button for the ground floor. The door opened to reveal Senator Buffart with her moo-moo billowing as she waved her cane aggressively at two cowering Belgian security guards. Her hips appeared to be caught in the security turnstiles. C'est bien remarquable, commented Friddle's assistant, his lip quivering in distaste. Voltaire said the same thing after seeing King George make fart jokes at a state dinner back in the day. But Voltaire just had to listen. He didn't have to figure out how to trick the king into a small Renault. Perhaps I'll just slip out the back entrance, I said. What? said my companion. And leave us with, with the senator? My companion's lip quivered for a split second. Do you, do you collect foreign minister photos, he asked. Who doesn't, I replied. A faint smile slithered over my companion's hauteur. Give me your card. I'll send you an autographed portrait of Sir William, if you can remove the senator from our premises. I smiled. Where's a taser-happy RCMP officer when you need one? I muttered to myself, as I tried to figure out how to deal with the senator. There are moments in life when one simply must leave one's doubts behind and take charge. Cranky senators and ambassadorial children demand firm treatment. They can smell fear. I strode towards the senator and the guards with a bold step making sure I approached from their blind side. Release the senator immediately, I cried out in a confident Churchillian tone. The French-speaking guards cringed and stepped back in surprise, wondering who I was and what I was saying. I waved imperiously at the receptionist, summoning them to help hold the folds of thigh fat in check so I could disentangle the senator's moo-moo from the turnstile. A wheelchair with a Norwegian flag was parked near the wall, and before the senator could object, 
I used my best French imperative to order the Belgian guards to load her into it. Senator, I said soothingly, please allow me to escort you to your meeting at the European Parliament. But I want to go to the meeting with the minister, she objected in the tones of a spoiled child. I stopped the wheelchair abruptly, in shock. Senator, you want to attend the technical working group on dimensional lumber standards? I paused. It could be a brilliant move. They are so close to agreeing on how to say two-by-four in metric. I began to turn the chair. I'll tell the ambassador to go to your meeting with the publisher of Whiskey Magazine, and you can go to the lumber meeting. My ploy worked. The senator put her hand on the brake. Whiskey Magazine? She acquired, obviously intrigued. Yes. I assumed your staff had told you. Something about tasting some rare single malts and organizing a Canadian delegation for their conference on the Isle of Skye. But, as I said, don't worry because we can easily send the ambassador instead if you want to discuss lumber tariff rate quotas and import surge monitoring mechanisms. I pushed the wheelchair forward. The senator pulled harder on the brake lever. Send the ambassador, she snorted. She found the idea ridiculous and abused me roundly as I rolled her into the car. I slipped into the front seat and spoke in French to the driver. I thought I told you to take her to the European Parliament. How did she find out about the meeting with the commissioner? I eyed him as a French resistance chef de réseau might have eyed a fellow résistant eating filet mignon and smoking fresh Galois after the Gestapo had showed up unexpectedly at the monthly arms drop. Our driver focused intently on the road, which was straight and traffic-free, and muttered something inaudible. You can't judge such people too harshly, unless you've been in their shoes. Who knew what tortures Senator Buffard had administered to extract the information? The driver still seemed to be nervous. I asked him what was bothering him. What happens when she finds out there is no lunch with Whiskey Magazine? We'll fall off that bridge when we get to it, I replied. To the European Parliament. The driver and I each took a side of Senator Buffard and helped her into the lobby. Martin scurried towards us. I could think of no better place for Senator Buffard to spend the next three hours than with the Canada Committee of the European Parliament. Martin greeted the senator with the appropriate obsequiousness and then pulled me aside. Is it true, McGregor, that the Canadian Senate is unelected? This is supposed to be an exchange of views between Democratic representatives. I toyed with the idea of explaining the Canadian Constitution to him. It would serve him right. Instead, I cut right to the point. The Senate has been unelected since 1867, and it hasn't stopped any of these transatlantic chinwags before. And you don't seem to mind visits by Chinese or Russian legislators. A scene is in no one's interest. Martin frowned primly. Well, we'll have to push it back 45 minutes. The Mexican Senate delegation arrived a day early. I showed Martin my frostiest smile. Ingrates. Was it the first Mexican army that kicked the Nazis out of the Netherlands? How many German cities did their air force obliterate? The senator appeared to have been listening. Then you could take me back to the minister's meeting, young man. Martin looked around to see who she was talking to. Now I really needed the publisher of Whiskey Magazine. I racked my brain to think of another ploy to keep Senator Buffard away from the commission. Perhaps I could drink her under the table in the European Parliament bar. Unlikely. Maybe the driver could take him to a random office building, far away, and then act surprised the Whiskey Magazine offices had moved. By the time she got back, I could be living under an assumed name in Luxembourg. But then, to my amazement, Violet Haverstock appeared out of an elevator. Napoleon always said the most important thing about being a successful general was to be lucky. And I thanked the gods and waved to Violet. How was Wisconsin? I asked as she approached. Fun, she replied, hardly batting an eye. You never know what's going to happen next.
Wisconsin is an emergency code word from a Flashman novel we both enjoyed back when she was my section at the department. We used to work it in as the conversation at meetings whenever the Moldovans sprung one of their new sugary spread gambits on us. I turned to my cantankerous companion. Senator Buffart, this is Violet from Whiskey Magazine. While you wait for your meeting with the Canada Committee, she would like to take you for a drink and tell you about their upcoming conference on the Isle of Skye. You can't have enough people like Violet on your side. She took Senator Buffart and steered her towards the bar. You are a master of your art, said the driver, wiping his brow nervously as we watched the senator disappear. Thank you, I said. But remember, one more mistake from you, and I'll assign her to you for the rest of the visit. I rushed back to the commission, only to find that the same security guards, who had been so grateful when I got rid of Senator Buffart, now no longer remembered me. Nor could they find my name on the list of attendees to get through security and Kennedy's cell phone appeared to be turned off. All other options being exhausted, I hailed a cab for La Morsubite. I needed to restore my sang-froid before the official dinner. I had a sense that I would need every ounce of courage I could muster to face whatever was going to happen to me next. That's a wrap for episode 14 of The Tarsan's Diplomat. If you liked it, please leave a review on iTunes, or if you're reading the book on Amazon.ca. And be sure to tune in next week for episode 15 of McGregor's Adventures in Brussels.